All right, this is Stephen Wagaspak with LABI, and I'm excited today not just for the fact that um, we have an exciting guest I want you to hear about, but also we are kicking off a new podcast called Good Works, where we're going to, from time to time, profile um, interesting people and organizations and entities that are making a positive impact in communities all across Louisiana. And so today is our first edition, and it is uh, an exciting one because I'm here joined by what I think is kind of a secret superstar in the education reform movement. She's a person that uh, many people may not have heard of before, but man, you want to talk about someone leaving a legacy here at the ground level um, for, for families and students across the state. It is this person. So I'm excited today to be joined by my friend, Sarah Broom. Sarah, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm going to put Secret Superstar on my resume at this Secret point. Secret Superstar. That's right. Put it in quotes. It's been said on a podcast, so that makes that it makes real. It very <laughs> well, I, I don't mean that in jest. I mean that in actuality. You are a Secret Superstar. Thank you. Um, so we're going to get into all that, what makes you that, that uh, superstar and all that. But first, um, for those of you that are, are sitting there thinking like, who the heck is Sarah Broom? Uh, walk us back a little bit. Who the heck are you? Uh, where'd you come from and how did you get down to this little outpost we call Louisiana? Yeah, so I'm actually originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up there and then went to college in D.C. at GW and studied political science and nonprofit management. And I thought I wanted to go into politics. Um, and I'm actually a fourth generation teacher. Um, okay. My mom's a teacher. Her grand, her parents were teachers, grandparents going all the way back. Um, my great grandfather was actually the superintendent of Homeless School District. Oh, wow. Way, way, way back <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and my whole life, I had always been told I would be great as a teacher. And, and I just kind of felt like, you know, that thing where all kids don't want to be their parents. And so since everybody... So you were feeling the calling, but instead you said, no, I'll go study politics. But yes. that, that little voice in your your head was just still there never went away um and I worked actually worked on Capitol Hill when I was in college and I did that about for six months maybe and I thought well this is not what I want (laughs) (laughs) no offense to everybody who who that is their jam I just really wanted more direct service I really believe in public service and I just wasn't feeling fulfilled in that way. So what era was this? Give me the years here. Gosh, oh, this is going to make me feel so old. Um, this would have been 07, 08. Hey, just so you know, that makes you so young. Just so you know. Okay, I, I was in D.C. a decade before that. So, oh, uh, God, right it just feels so long down. ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I worked for Sherrod Brown mm-hmm. um, yeah. for about six months, and, and it was wonderful. It's not right. that it was a bad experience. I just really wanted to serve in a different way. Sure. Um, and so I'd been seeing these signs around campus for Teach for America and decided to go to an information session and listen to it. And I just thought, I, I do actually really want to teach. Like after all of this, <laughs> I really want to teach. And my mom has never let me live it down that I got a four-year degree in political science. <laughs> to go teach. <laughs> to go teach eventually, which was what my everybody in my life had said you need to do. Right. Um, So I joined Teach for America. I um, have a lot of family down here. My parents are the only ones in Cincinnati. The rest of my family's all here. Um, And mostly in the New Orleans, St. Tammany area. And so when I was selecting where I was going to go, I put, you know, New Orleans first on my preference. Okay, I want to timestamp this for a little bit, just so folks realize, because this is 2007, 2008, 2008, yeah. Okay, so this is about three years after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita hit. Yep. And I think that's an important for folks to realize because it was during that era where Louisiana was in the midst of embarking on huge education system questions. Right. Are we going to rebuild exactly the way we had? Or are we going to bring in innovative reforms and outside partners and kind of do it differently? 
And at that time, the state made a decision on a bipartisan level, we're going to reinvent and we're going to be innovative and we're going to do it differently. And TFA, Teach for America, was one of those partners that stepped up at the time and sent an army of young, innovative, change-oriented, young you know, professionals to come down here and be part of that revolution. And I'm taking it you were one of those people. So walk us through what made you come down here to do that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this, you know, I was a 22-year-old college student, right? So you walk into it without that bigger understanding. And I right. certainly had a bigger understanding of Katrina because my, my family had been here and kind of gone through that. And, you know, my aunt, uncle, and cousins lived, uh, you know, lived at the beach for three months while they couldn't get back to their home. And, and we lived that as a family, but not necessarily as, you know, an education system. And, right. and you kind of walk into this as a 22-year-old without a full understanding of the ecosystem that's going on around you. Um, and I, I originally preferenced New Orleans first on my list, you know, that was closer to my family. And um, that was like the in place to go at the time. Um, but I also put South Louisiana on the list because what was really important to me was to end up in Louisiana with, with my family. Um, and the way Teach for America regions work, New Orleans is New Orleans. Okay. And then South Louisiana is basically everything else, everywhere else in Sounds Louisiana. Sounds familiar. That's yeah. how it's always viewed down here. <laughs> it's New Orleans and everyone else. <laughs> and so mostly in Baton Rouge, but also in kind of surrounding parishes as well. And little did I know that if you said you were willing to go to South Louisiana, you were going to South Louisiana. Because everyone was signing for New Orleans back Everyone then. wanted to go to New Orleans. Yeah. yeah, that was the very, you know, I think the New Orleans core my year had like 180 or 200 core members or something. I mean, it was just huge, huge numbers. Um, and South Louisiana, for perspective, had about 40, 45 that year. Um, and so I ended up here in Baton Rouge um, accidentally and and ended up being one in a big series of events that was just like, man, there was a higher purpose to all of this that right. somebody else was setting up the dominoes to fall the way that they did. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, and so ended up here in Baton Rouge. And so I actually ended up at teaching at Prescott Middle School. Um, the first year it was a charter school under Advanced Baton Rouge. So knowing now better the history of the charter movement in in Louisiana and not knowing it at all when I walked into it. You know, New Orleans had started experimenting with this and, and had the charter schools um, up and running, but Baton Rouge really didn't at the time. Right. You know, Children's Charter was kind of an aberration at that mm -hmm. time. Um, and it, the first schools that were taken over by the Department of Education in that recovery school district um, in 2008 were those advanced Baton Rouge schools. So oh. Prescott, Glen Oaks, um, Capitol, Point Coupee, um, Dalton, and Lanier. Now, were you part of that teaching uh, core or faculty in the first year of yes. that takeover? Okay, yeah. so that, that's a tough transition in itself. Yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, I think I've had a lot of time and, and distance to get some good perspective mm -hmm. on it, um, and, and I had a lot of frustration um, those first couple of years really feeling like this is just a, a mess, frankly, um, and, you know, with the perspective of, of time, I've been able to look back on it and see there was absolutely no way for those schools to be successful the way that they were set up and the way it was launched. I think they got the keys to the building on like July 15th or something. Like I've now run a school for more than a decade. That's just not possible. Right. You, you cannot run a good school with that kind of setup. And I think everybody on our hallway was a first year teacher, like none of us had ever taught before. Um, and so we were really out of our depth. And like the average age in my sixth grade class that year was like 16. 
Um, and we just didn't have any of the resources we needed to to deal with this. And and it really stayed with me that like this is an example of, of how it can be done really badly. Like this isn't great. So this resource, you know, piece, I've heard you talk about this moment in your career a little bit. How long were you at Prescott? Three years. Three years. And so, you know, there's a different type of TFA student, I mean, excuse me, a teacher who comes down, they spend a year or two in that situation. They feel some of the same, you know, pushback that you felt and they get out of Dodge. They say, this isn't for me. I'm going back. I'm going back home. I'm going to do a different field. You didn't do that. No. You 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 caught that pushback and you reacted differently to it. You doubled down. You put down roots and you said, "I want to be part of the larger to solution to some of the pretty systemic challenges I'm seeing." Give a little flavor of what that event was and, and during that time and, and and why that caused you to double down here, as compared to you know what a lot of your colleagues probably did, rightfully so, and pack your suitcase and, and go back home. Um, a student at my school was killed in a fatal stabbing during a neighborhood fight. Um, she was 14 years old, and, and she was killed by an 18-year-old girl um, as a part of a fight that she and her two sisters had been in. Um, and I just have this, I mean, I have all these different, like, spurst memories throughout all of this. I didn't teach her. I taught her two younger sisters, and um, they had been, like, difficult kids in, in my class, so I knew them very well, and I'd spoken to parents a lot, and... Um, you know, the day after she died, I went with some other teachers and, and brought food to the house because it was the only thing we knew what to do. And I just remember standing outside, like holding this casserole and feeling just like the most useless um, right. person. Like this was not what was needed. Um, I wasn't, we just weren't giving them what they needed. And then the girls came back to school a couple weeks after the funeral Um and sat in my classroom every day and I just remember looking at them and I, and I taught math and I just kept thinking like you do not need algebra <laughs> like this does not matter right now and and I feel so frustrated that I can't figure out how within the school system that exists to meet the needs that I know you have that are going unmet and like Technically, are they academic needs and, and school responsibility, you know, quote unquote, I mean, auto, audio medium as sure. I air quotes, but um, no, but like on a human level, I, I want to meet these needs for you. Like these are kids that are sitting in my classroom and are my responsibility. And I just feel like I can't do what they need at that moment. So, so this is a, this is an interesting point in your story to me, because I think if you asked any teacher in Louisiana, and you ask them, you know, what's the hardest part of their job? I bet many of them at some point will, will tell some version of a student in their classroom, or maybe it's a handful of students in their classroom, and they know that there's issues happening outside the classroom, which are making it hard for that student to, to concentrate, hard for them. What, maybe they're coming in hungry. Maybe they're coming in from an unsafe environment. Maybe there's other factors there. And it's got to have a, a little bit of a helpless feeling as a teacher. Yeah. Like, I, how do I... How do I connect the dots with that with that kid? How do I help them solve some of those problems so I can then do my job here in the classroom and really touch them academically? Um, that's got to be one of the largest parts. And, yeah. and I'm sure there's a large number of teachers who throughout their career, that bugs them, that irks them, and, and they wonder what they can do. You took that feeling, and you did something pretty unique and historic with it. Let's talk a little bit about like how you acted on that, that little voice you were hearing inside your head um, and, and tell that story of kind of what you came up with and how you got there. Yeah, so I, I will say 
almost every single time I'm with a group of educators and I explain Thrive and, and what it is and, and that it's a residential school, almost every single one of them says to me, oh, yeah, I've wanted to do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's not an abnormal feeling. It was just most people had the the sanity and the experience to say this would be really, really hard to pull off and if not impossible. Well, before we get to Thrive, because yeah. we haven't introduced that yet on this yeah. podcast. So <laughs> so what is the need that you felt yeah. uh, that needed to be addressed? I felt like there were students in in my building who needed a level of support that was not academic and that went outside the realm of of the norm. So they maybe needed like some of my kids didn't have places to sleep and and some of my kids didn't have a stable place where they could do laundry and weren't always going to be able to expect meals on a regular basis. Um, and even just didn't have anybody at home with them and and didn't have that support for a whole variety of reasons. And so I wanted to create a place where they would be safe and we could kind of meet all the basic needs. And as I've been able to reflect back over the last decade, I I think this initial understanding that I had and, and the initial goal and purpose was good, but incomplete. Um, and so I my initial thought was all about meeting these kind of like checkbox needs, right? Like every kid needs food, every kid needs safety, every kid needs shelter, you know, and it was just like, how can I most effectively meet all of these needs? And, and the way that that initially came to me was a residential model, because when I made the list of all of the resources that I wanted to provide to kids, it was like, there's no way to fit this into a normal school day. There's no way to make this work. Um, The only way to do this is I need significantly more time and solving some of these challenges, a residential model is the right approach. Um, you, you do realize that so far what we've decided is you're three years out of college at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> the first couple of weeks you were here, you thought it was a big deal that you got a water bill lined up with your roommate. Yeah. So that was a big accomplishment. Really big. <laughs> three years later, you decide to leave the classroom and open up a residential facility that's st- basically a state-of-the-art concept in totally unique to Louisiana. And that was that's a pretty big transition in three yeah. years. So you had, uh, <laughs> you, you'd learn to shoot for the stars quickly. So, okay, so you get this concept. Um, what, what, how did, what was your first step in that direction to get that done? <laughs> um, embarrassingly enough, I, so I'd, I'd played around with it in my mind for a really long time, actually, and, and kind of thought about it. And, um, and mostly I thought of all the reasons why it wouldn't work, which you could make a really compelling list of reasons why something like this wouldn't work. Um, but I went to Teach for America had a 20th anniversary summit in DC that year. Um, and I went and I, I was sitting in some session and had a conversation with somebody who was sitting next to me. And I don't know how we got on this topic, but I was kind of describing this model that I had like brewing. Um, and I really ended up spending most of the time listing all the reasons why it wouldn't work. Um, and he finally just like turned to me and he was like, just do it. Like, and I don't know why, you know, sometimes you're just in the right mindset to hear um, that encouragement that was necessary. Um, and so when you ask what the first step was, embarrassingly enough, when we flew back home, I, and I remember this like very vividly landing in the Baton Rouge airport, getting in my car out of that parking lot and going to the Barnes and Noble at City Place and buying a book called Nonprofits for Dummies, um, because I had like no <laughs> earthly idea how to do any of this. 
Um, and so that first night back, you know, just tore through that book and started trying to understand what it would look like to launch this nonprofit. Cause I, you know, I knew in my mind it would have to be a charter school to be, to do this kind of crazy out of the box thing. And so I had to start with the nonprofit. And I think within like two weeks I had incorporated and, um, launched the nonprofit and, and started doing the work. Um, so that was probably, I think that was like February of 2011, I think, or 2010. I don't know. I'm going to get these. No, 2011. Um, and by August of 2012, we were open with our first class of kids. There's a and lot of steps in between. How many kids in that first class? 20 kids, 10 boys, 10 girls. And were you chartered at the local level or state level? So we were an EBR charter. So you, at the you local level. You got a local level. charter. Yep. Within a couple of months, you've got 20 kids on campus. Where was your campus? It was the downtown on, on government, right? Yes. So that was one of the wild things. Again, when you think about like dominoes being set and, and I'm a big believer in a higher power that really had a, a big hand in this. And, you know, again, I can point to all the times where I'm like, that's just like ridiculous <laughs> that that this happened. But um, I can't remember the exact timing of it, if this happened first or if we got the charter approved first. But we were very close to getting the charter approved. They happened like pretty in tandem. And I read a piece in the newspaper that was talking about um, the old school for the blind on government street, that it was being rehabbed and turned into this like communal nonprofit location called Fisk. Um, and that they were going to be renting out the space. And so you think about, you know, you have this wild concept to start a residential school and then you get to the point where you're almost approved to do it. And, and I'd been looking at other options for spacing. I mean, I looked at some like crazy options for space and then you see in the paper one day, Hey, there's an old residential school for rent. You know, I, it just doesn't get like any more serendipitous. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we opened in 2012 there, 10 boys, 10 girls in that first class. Um, in sixth grade and, and, and started on that government street campus. And we were there for four years. And students would come Sunday nights or is that correct? Or yeah, they right? come Sunday nights and they go home Friday afternoon. So they're, so. they're with you all throughout the week. Yep. They, and they were 24 seven during that time. During, right. Well, I guess 24, 24 five. five. Yeah. <laughs> 24 five during that time, they go home on the weekends, they would come back. Yeah. And for four years you were there. Yeah. Right. And that cl- first class was what grade? All in the same grade? Or? Sixth grade. Yeah, all sixth grade, and we added an, another grade every year. So we actually had our first graduating class in 2019, and that, that class was the sixth graders who started so in 2012. Not to not to talk too much about any particular student's um, performance or anything like that, yeah. but my, my impression is that the first class scores came in, as, it was pretty tough, right? You know, you had a lot of work to do. Yeah. So when they came to us, um, you know, you don't really get an incoming score, SPS score necessarily, but you can take the kids fifth grade test scores and you can put them into the same formula and you can compute out what that would have been. Um, And we did that because we wanted to get a baseline. Um, And so the incoming class was a 19.6 SPS. So for reference, that is an extreme F. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think most Fs in the state at that time. And again, it's hard because our our performance grading system has changed like four times since we launched. And so you it's really hard to go back now and compare apples to apples. But most F schools at the time were in the 40s and 50s. And and we came in starting at a 19.6. And that first year, we grew those kids to a 76.9, which was just an exponential. um, That is an Apollo mission type performance right there is what that is. Yeah, it was really. So you weren't just providing laundry, 
food, shelter, et cetera, what your original motivation was, you were at the same time giving them rapid academic improvement. Yeah, but I would also argue that most kids are able to perform their best when they have all of those other supports in place. So it almost wasn't that we were doing anything that extraordinary academically. I mean, I think our teachers did did a great job and we do small class sizes and, and, you know, with only 20 kids to focus on, you can really go in depth. Um, But I do think it was just that structure and stability, you know, and a lot of the kids that we had were referred to us through the truancy office. So these were kids who had had missed tons of school in the previous year, you know, like 100 days of school or something like that. Um, And so for a lot of them, it was like the most consistent time they'd ever spent in school. Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to find them on a Sunday. And sometimes, I mean, that first year, I literally would be like driving around on Monday mornings trying to find kids who didn't get on the bus on Sunday evening. But once we had them there, they were there. Um, And so that consistency and that support, plus the smaller class sizes and and kind of that supportiveness, I think is what led to that growth. And and to me, it's just such a demonstration that so much of what we see in test scores isn't so much academics as it is everything that goes on around a kid that's not academic necessarily. It's so true. It's so true. I remember visiting with you first year or two. I went over there and visited you over there. You probably remember this. But I remember like the little thing I remember from that visit was when you walked down the hallway, um, you weren't this nice little just couple years out of college. You were the person in charge, and every student and teacher there knew it. Like when you walked down the hallway, the, the, the students would take notice. You were you had a very good ownership of your role, that building. You were the heartbeat and the epicenter of that whole thing. I found that very interesting. For At this point, you're still a very young person. 26. Figuring your yeah. way out, doing something that's pretty innovative and groundbreaking in a state that was trying a lot of innovative and groundbreaking stuff in education reform at the time, yet you were rising to the top of that list. Very impressive. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. You're in this building for four years. The, the buzz about Thrive is getting around the community, get around the state. People saying, how can they help? And you're like, i tell you how you can help. <laughs> we got to get out of this old building yeah. and go to a new campus. Yeah. You find a spot on the other side of town. You find the land. You get into an aggressive fundraising campaign. So talk to us a little bit today. Where is Thrive today? What is some of the campus um, uh, update? What is some of the student population performance update? What, what is the state of play with Thrive today Fast forwarding 10 years from where that opening day uh, bell was. Yeah, so now we have a seven-acre campus on Brightside. Mm -hmm. We're actually right across the street from the current School for the Blind and the Deaf, um, right near LSU's campus. Um, So seven acres, three buildings. Um, So we have a a dormitory that we completed construction on. We now have a gym and a cafeteria and classroom space as well as dorms and some athletic space and fields. Um, And so we're fully built out. I think there's still some you know, long-term updates that you want to do, like revamping our residential activity center and, and that kind of thing. But the, the core bones are done. Um, how, and ma- that was, how many students today? So 180 kids. In 180 kids. Let's put a snapshot on this. Yeah. 11 years ago, you're finishing your second year of your TFA commitment, thinking about, I'm going to get out of here, go back home. And you're like, well, I'll give it one more year. 10 years ago, you're in that third year of TFA. A traumatic event happens in your classroom. It moves you to where you want to go and try to address some of these larger issues that are impacting these kids coming into your classroom. And then a decade later, here you are with a state-of-the-art facility and concept that has become a model that other areas are trying to learn from, come in and seeing. You've raised the money for it. You've got 160, what it was, was it, kids 180. Now? 180 kids now, almost 40 you know, personnel, et cetera. 
huge success story. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what's next for you in a second. But I find it interesting all that you accomplished pretty much early in your career to now. And that was during an era of big innovation in the education reform movement in Louisiana. And there's very few people beyond yourself, I think, that were, you know, let me say it this way. There were a lot of people during those last 12 years who were really good on policy. And there are a lot of good people during those last 12 years who are really good at implementation or teaching or administration or in the foundation or fundraising. There were a lot of people who were very skilled that made these last 12, 15 years effective in education reform. There's very few people who kind of had it all under one roof like you did. Yeah. You, you've done all that. Yeah, we, I know we can go deep on the capital uh, <laughs> lobbying thing you had to do to get the funding right and everything. But very few people did that. So what are some lessons that we need to learn from you? Because as we talk about your next steps in a second, it's going to be you're, you're leaving, going, you know, do other things, which we're happy for you. But before you get out of here. What do we as a state need to learn from your experience? What is the next, how do we prepare the next Sarah Broom to come here and also follow that dream, see that warning sign in their classroom, think big and bold, try to do something? What are some lessons learned we have from you so that we make sure we can have lots of Sarah Brooms for years to come, do big, bold, innovative things uh, that we can't even think of yet? Yeah, not an easy question. Um, I guess I would say, so I think in a couple different buckets, like educationally um, and then organizationally and then on a policy level. And so starting with educationally, um, you know, as I said earlier, I feel like my initial concept for Thrive was good but incomplete. Mm-hmm. And, and the incomplete part that I really have come to a deep awareness of over the last several years was that um, we were not, we were addressing a lot of like structural tangible needs, but we were not addressing mental health needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest lesson in education that I have come out of the last 10 years or 11 years of running a boarding school um, is that I, I've come to fundamentally believe we cannot do anything in education until we prioritize and address mental health um, in, in our schools. Um, so much of what we see and so many of the challenges both our students and our teachers are facing are mental health related. Um, and, and it is a field that right now it's starting to get attention and it's starting to be destigmatized in, in a big way. Like even even in my tenure at Thrive, like we went from having a lot of pushback from parents when we wanted to do some any kind of counseling and, and therapy work to now we don't have any parents who say no anymore to doing therapeutic services. Um, and so it's coming more into play. And I think COVID really highlighted it for a lot of folks where they really saw like man, we can have, we can do some serious damage to kids' mental health. And if we don't treat that, we, we really can't help them in education. Um, Let me ask you, on yeah. the mental health work that you're doing at a residential facility like Thrive, yeah, do some of those same effective tactics and skills easily translate to yes. a non-residential facility? Are yeah. you seeing that in some of the non-residentials or do you think there's a lot of room to go uh, on that front? Oh, there's so much room to, to grow. And, um, you know, I think everything that we do at Thrive for mental health you could do at a traditional school, full stop. Um, and I think when I think of myself as a school leader and how I came to this place and understanding where I am about mental health, it was an evolution for me that started with, yes, that sounds great. I'd love to have some mental health resources on campus. You want to, you outside provider want to come in? Sure, I will find space for you. Come, come work with kids. To now... 
over the last three years, we completely flipped the model on its head and and focused hugely on on mental health and hired staff and integrated it into our day and and into everything that we do and really focused on being a trauma-informed school because of the population that we serve. Um, And the the successes that I have seen from that and the changes that I have seen from that, from addressing the mental health issues, I have seen more progress from that than I saw from the residential component. Let's just let's just quickly touch on. Okay, so you, you're heading out. You have told uh, Thrive Board that you're stepping down. You're moving on to greener, well, better, different pastures. I'll <laughs> say it that way. Um, this transition plan that will do great. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's next for Sarah Broom. Yeah, so um, I had originally planned to take a break, and I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I think I'm just not very good at breaks. I also feel like COVID was, there's a degree to which there was a break kind of built in with that. Do not treat COVID as a vacation. <laughs> it's okay to take a vacation, just so you know. Um, no, so I, part of the mental health work that we did, and, and again, a big part of this has been my evolution as a school leader, where it wasn't that I never valued mental health. It was that one, I didn't value it high enough on the list. And that two, I could not see my way to how I could fund it, how I could operationalize it. And when I couldn't see that, I didn't go any further in pushing. Um, I eventually pushed past that because of kind of the experience I had um, where, where I was like, we got to change something. Um, and so kind of went program first and figure out how to pay for it later. But in trying to figure out how to pay for it, we discovered this Medicaid pathway that's still relatively new Mm -hmm. across the country um, that allows schools to bill Medicaid and get reimbursed by Medicaid for mental health services, Mm -hmm. um, which is just an extraordinarily efficient use of money to Mm -hmm. to treat mental health on on campus instead of trying to have families drive all over the place and and find services. it is a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare um, to make that work. And and so far, only 13 states have tried to implement this. Um, and so my end goal is helping school leaders get mental health services into their building. But I Teach for America has like trained my brain to be backwards planned um, and I, I can't help it. And so when I think about, okay, how do I get to that goal? And I work my way back. The first step has to be showing school leaders that there is a pathway to fund this, mm-hmm. um, which means helping the states that haven't set this up yet, get this set up. Um, and so my next steps are going to be very boring to talk about, but um, very exciting at the end of the day. And so I'm going to be focusing on helping states get this Medicaid pathway set up. And I always tell people, you know, it sounds really in the weeds and boring, but the end result is, is that if the entire country did this and did this well, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars every year to schools to fund mental health services. Um, And I keep hearing in the post-COVID world, everybody is talking about mental health in schools, but nobody quite knows how to put their arms around it and kind of find the hard edges. And, And this is the way to do it. Um, and so that is going to be my next adventure is going to be a lot of Medicaid policy. <laughs> well, if there's anyone that can figure out how to crack that nut, I have no, idea, no doubt it is, it is going to be you. Um, you've, you've had a, a strong run to date of your entire career of seeing problems as, as nothing but opportunities that haven't been figured out yet, uh, not yeah. brick walls. And that, please don't ever lose that mindset. Um, <laughs> So, look, we're going to wrap it up here. Okay. Um, it's been a great visit, but I just, I, I, on behalf of everyone in Louisiana, 
uh, she'll say thank you um, because I think watching you evolve in your career, watching um, you know the tentacles of your investment of time, love, and energy, and the, and the ripple effects it's going to have here, we're going to benefit for years to come. And so you know, I'm glad you stayed that extra year in TFA. I'm glad you sat by that one random dude you can't remember <laughs> at the conference who told you to go for it. And um, I'm glad you you rolled up your sleeves and did a lot of you know tough thinking and implementing to get Thrive to where it is today. Because I think we're going to we continue to watch that center grow, and I think we're going to learn some great ideas from it. And I think Louisiana's going to be better off for it, having it be there as a as a laboratory for us to learn from. So, with that, thank you, Sarah Broom. Thank you for having and me. And best it was of really luck fun. in your next adventures. And uh, next time you come down to visit, um, pop in. Maybe we'll get back on here. Maybe we will have a glass of wine or two. You never know. So. <laughs> All right, trying that, to trying to get me to say things I shouldn't. Well, that, that's that's the point of every podcast, just so you know. So um, that is that is our first Good Works podcast. We'll be uh, letting you know from time to time, profiling different uh, impactful people and organizations that are moving the needle and making a positive difference here in Louisiana. So thanks for tuning in.